I remember my parents telling me about this certain show like that. And so I Googled it on the internet to uh, see if it was really true. I'm glad we, we could find that clip to kind of introduce this thought of showing partiality this morning. No secondhand junk wanted. Well, have you ever felt like little Kathy was feeling in that? I mean, all she gets is the hand-me-downs. Nothing brand new just for her. She feels unimportant to the family, kind of ignored on the outside. As we go through these verses in James chapter 2 today, uh, I think there are times we feel slighted or maybe even shamed or belittled. We feel left out kind of as that odd person in some social setting or in a family or at work or at school. Uh, we feel like we get the secondhand junk or we're made to feel like we're secondhand junk. And I'd be willing to bet that many of you right now are thinking of a painful moment in the past uh, that made you feel kind of like you were the one on the outside. You were the one being marginalized. And you know what? I, I want you to hold on to that uncomfortable thought for a moment. I don't want you to just rush past it. I want you to live in that moment and really feel that hurt all over again. Regrass the emotions, that mood. Not very comfortable, is it? We don't like it when we're made to feel shamed or less than others. And so James makes a very clear point here that we're not to be the ones causing partiality. We're not the ones to elevate some people as we lower others. And so the, the key to this passage is how we hold our faith in verse 1. James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord in one hand and then have this attitude of partiality in the other. In fact, I don't think you really can hold faith in a glorious Lord Jesus Christ and continue to judge other people based on worldly standards, what they have, what they don't have, how they look, what our personal preferences may be. Showing partiality is just now one example of this, this table talk that we're going through in the book of James. You can't really have this faith and be showing partiality in the family of faith. And yet we do it in so many ways. And so James in chapter 2 gives us a rebuke over one particular issue. The one issue is showing partiality to wealthy people. People who have more material goods... And then kind of shaming those who have left. But, but the application is very broad. I've enjoyed Jerry talking about the different conversations he and his family have had at, at his table. So I had to kind of pull out some old memories this week. But uh, I do remember raising three boys. And uh, at least three times a year when birthdays came around, we always had this conversation of who was going to be invited because there's always some little boy or little girl in the neighborhood or on the soccer team or at the class at church. We don't want them there, Dad. 
And we'd have to go through this conversation. Well, what's that going to feel like if everybody else is invited and they're left out? It's something that we all do. We do it as adults. We're constantly thinking at work, at school, in the neighborhood. Who's in? Who's out? We make choices based on our preferences that God never really intended. So let's talk about this for a moment. The book of of James is in many ways a rebuke. I mean, it's five chapters of rebuke. So I want you to imagine right now you're sitting at the table with James. We'll give him the captain's chair today. And we're sitting at the table and James is talking to us as he does in this book. Kind of like a family of faith. We're having lunch with James. And I want you to uh, go back and let's reflect on some of the things that Pastor Jerry's preached on in the last few weeks in chapter 1. So we're sitting at the table. James is talking to his family. And he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one of you, when you're tempted, you get carried away and enticed by your own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So listen, family, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good, perfect gift from above comes from the Father of lights. To whom there's no variation or shifting of shadow. Now, you're sitting at the table. What are you going to do? First of all, you're going to cling on to the fact that he calls us beloved brethren. (laughs) James isn't angry at us. He's not mad at us. He loves us. He's just challenging us at the table to think correctly. And so maybe you're kind of sitting there hanging your head and then... In the next few verses, he kind of zings us again. Now this you know, my beloved brethren. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Well, again, at least he calls us beloved brethren. He doesn't want us to get on the defenses as we are apt to do. He doesn't want us to angrily respond He's not being punitive in his rebuke. He only desires the transformation of our heart. And then as we maybe try to sneak a little bite to eat, here he comes again at the table. Therefore, put aside all your filthiness, all that remains of wickedness. And in humility, I want you to receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But... Guys, when you get up from the table, I I want you to prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who delude themselves. Now, at least here, the rebuke is a little encouraging. You know, he's saying, look, family, you've you've come so far in your transformation. Let's keep it going. You've put away some sin. Let's put some more away and practice doing what God says to do. And then the rebuke continues in verse 26 and 7. If any one of you think to be religious and yet you don't bridle your tongue, hey, you're just deceiving your own heart and your religion is worthless. 
pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Would you agree, James is just, he's calling us out in chapter 1. So what are you going to do the next time you pick up the phone and it's James on the other end. He says, hey, let's go have lunch. That's going to be going through your mind. You see, rebuke is a word that the Bible gives for bringing truth where change is needed. The Bible is God's word. It's truth that speaks to us where change is needed. That's what a rebuke is. If it's truth and we're already doing that, no change is needed. That's, you know, just God's word has worked its way out in our life. It's where change is needed. There are other words in the scriptures. Um, the word reprove or correct or even convict. Uh, usually we think of that as the work of the Holy Spirit. But God uses his people to convict each other. But most of us don't respond well to rebuke. I mean, how would you like it? You know, I said, hey, Raymond, let's meet tomorrow afternoon at Starbucks. I want to rebuke you. <laughs> I think he'd be looking at his calendar and going, I don't know about this, you know. I think I'm busy, you know. Don't know if I want to be doing that or not. What goes through your mind when your spouse says, we got to sit down and talk about something. Our dad pulls the, don't, don't look at each other. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Our dad says, okay, it's time to have a family discussion. We need to sit down. What pops in our mind is harsh words, tempers, red faces, ultimatums, threats. But that's not the biblical purpose of correction and rebuke and reproof. There's a book that uh, our life group leaders have gone through. It's called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. It's by Paul Tripp. And Paul Tripp also wrote a book on parenting, Shepherding a Child's Heart. And basically it's, you know, we're not trying to change behavior in our children or each other. Uh, we're trying to change the heart. It's transformation of the heart. All of us can change our behavior. You know, a child can change their behavior an hour. <laughs> you know, adults, we can change it for three or four months. But unless the heart's changed, you know, there's no true transformation. And he talks about how the scriptures present rebuke as a natural part of holding our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That rebuke among the family of faith should kind of be common talk. Commonality in our community when we, we meet together. It's speaking the truth in love. Notice how many times James says, my beloved brethren. Not mad at you, but we need to talk about this. It's speaking the truth in love. It's not waiting and waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden we have this explosive confrontation it should be those everyday loving challenges correction with no other agenda than the transformation of our hearts 
Biblical correction and confrontation is rooted in submission to the great commandment. The great commandment has two sides to it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is rooted in that. The only reason we confront one another is because we love God. And we want to obey Him. And we love our neighbor or our family as we love ourselves. Let's cheat and let's look down a little bit here in verse 8 because James calls this the royal law. He doesn't call it the great commandment. He calls it the royal law in verse 8. And he says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you're doing well. You're doing good. But when we start rebuking in selfish anger, we are not fulfilling the law of love. We're just yelling at each other. And so rebuke is not something that exists outside of a good relationship. And then you just kind of bring it in at crisis moments. The biblical model is you have this ongoing relationship with ongoing honesty Ongoing truth telling. The biblical model is we have lots and lots of many little moments sitting around the table of confrontation slash encouragement. And it's all motivated by our love for God and our love for each other. And so that gets us into chapter 2. Another rebuke to fellow believers. Notice that James humbly again calls us brothers in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's saying, hey, we're in this together. We're a family and, and we need to lovingly talk about this issue and how we're going to respond. Rebuke is never a rare occurrence in Christian community. It's a natural part of our everyday re, uh, discipleship to each other. We don't confront in anger or with a, a long list of grievances that we've been building up in some explosive manner. And let me say we should receive it with humility, not defensively. Because usually the way we do confrontation and we're approached with it, we start not listening, we start building up, well, but they did this and they did that and they dressed like that and, 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 and all of this. And we get on the defensive rather than humbly going, you know what, I, maybe there's something I need to hear here. This is for my good because it's not being motivated by anger, it's being motivated by love. Correction should be a natural part of our regular table talk. Now the rebuke at hand in, in James chapter 2, the first 13 verses, is that some of the members were showing partiality to the wealthy, to the marginalization of the poor. There was a wealthy guest or two that were given preference over poor guests. Now, right now, I want you to be thinking of other applications to this injunction. 
Because we're not going to spend our time just on this one particular issue. Ask yourself right now, in what ways do I show partiality to some people to the exclusion of others? What are my preferences here and what is that saying about me and my walk with the Lord? And then follow along as James continues in verses 2, 3, and 4. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor girl reading scripture in dirty clothes. Did any of y'all catch that? Trying hard here. Did anybody catch this? May not can see it. I won't embarrass anybody, but somebody in the 9 o'clock hours I got through with this, they said, you know, I don't know what that is up there, but you need to throw that away. I thought, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> it worked. So, a man comes in your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes. There comes this poor man in dirty clothes. You pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, hey, you sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, well, you, you stand way over there, nobody can see you, or sit down here by my footstool and people won't see you. Three things. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? You become judges, and you become judges with evil motives. First of all, notice that this rebuke is not directed at the wealthy guy. Because if James challenges you at the table, you go, well, man, he came walking in looking like all that, you know. It's not about the wealthy guy. Now, he may have his own issues. But James isn't concerned about him. He's concerned about us. He's a guest at church. The issue is not him. It's our reaction to him. It's what idols are in our heart. What are we judging people by? The transformation of the heart is never about somebody else. Transformation of the heart's not about what they did or didn't do or how they look like or the situation we find ourselves in. It's about us and our reaction to the situation and our response to people and what they say and do. The issue here isn't about the poor man either. There's no speculation on why he's poor. We don't know if he's a lazy bum or if he's trying hard to get a job. The issue is not about him. The issue is about us making distinctions and making judgments that are evil in their motive. Now listen, God's church, God created his church to be a place where social distinctions would not exist. But unfortunately, even in a, a great church like the Ridge... When believers get together and we all come with our imperfections because the transformation process isn't complete yet. Sin still resides in us in different ways. Partiality will show its face. The early days of the church was comprised primarily of common people, of humble means. I mean, that's just a historical fact. And so you can only imagine when a rich person was converted and, and they came into the Christian fellowship. I mean, there had to have been a very real temptation to make a, a big fuss over this 
man or woman like Lydia the seller of purple in, in the book of Acts. To treat them as if they're some special trophy of Jesus Christ. The church is the one place where distinctions are wiped out. Proverbs 22.2 reminds us, The rich and the poor have one common bond. What is that? The Lord's the maker of both of them. God's made both of them. And if you put that into Christian terms, our Lord God is the one who has remade them in the image of the Son through a saving relationship of Jesus Christ. We've heard it many times, the ground at the cross is level. Where all men meet in the presence of the holy God. And when we make class distinctions, our hearts are revealed to be judgmental with evil motives. Look at the next set of verses, 5, 6, and 7. Listen, my beloved brethren. There it is again. <laughs> beloved brethren. Might I'll just go through James and count how many times he says that. This is good table talk. My beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And is it not the rich who oppresses you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Listen, beloved brethren. James loves us. God loves us. Our pastor Jerry loves you. Our elders love you. Our staff love you. Our life group leaders, they love you. Beloved brethren, this is table talk. There's a quote that's been attributed to Abraham Lincoln. It goes something like this. God must love the common man because he made so many of them. I like better what Jesus said when he declared right at the beginning of his ministry, one of his first sermons, he used a passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. He stood there, he declared, this is why I've come into this world. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's not that God is against wealthy people coming to faith in Christ. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's not reverse discriminate here and judge wealthy people with evil motives. That's not what this passage is about. It's about our hearts. And notice how James points out that God chose the poor to be rich in faith. He wants all of us to be rich in our faith. God's main interest is not to make poor people rich in material goods, but rich in our faith. And to understand this great truth, we are heirs to the kingdom of God. What more could a man or woman want? We are heirs to the kingdom of God through what Christ has done for us on the cross. 
Now James does uh, call out the rich here who oppress people. And in that day it was pretty much standard. I don't think he's calling out the wealthy in the church. Could be, but this seems to be he's making the application here to the rich people outside the church. You made this big deal about this guy coming to church, but don't you remember those outside the church? They oppress you, they drag you into court over some small debt collection that, that, that you're owed. The rich outside the church, they blaspheme the very name of Jesus Christ. They stand opposed to God. Here's a little side point maybe for some of us to consider. Sometimes the very ones we admire, sometimes the very ones we put on the pedestal, sometimes those that we have a preference for, they're the very ones who could care less about us and could even oppress us if given the chance. One time in my stay out in Southern California, I was working on a seminary degree. Weekends, we were free to explore Southern California. It's a magical place. and uh, There is a, a list on the black market you can pay somebody 20 bucks for. And you find out where all the TV shows and movies are being shot that are outside of the studio. And so you see where these places are and you just drive up and watch them shoot stuff. Now, back in those days, I'm kind of ashamed to admit now, but I was a Wonder Woman fan, and <laughs> I liked Linda Carter. My buddy and I, we drove up to a house just in a residential neighborhood. There was no tape, no police guards, no anything. She's shooting a movie inside. It wasn't a Wonder Woman episode, but, you know, and, and we just walked upstairs, and we just sat there and watched them shooting this scene, and Talked to the key grippers. I, I learned what a gripper was and all this kind of stuff. And, and finally they took a break and Linda Carter comes walking by. And I said, Miss Carter, do you have a moment? I'd like to get your autograph and a picture with you. She goes, well, I only have five minutes, but okay. I didn't care. I had my picture made with her. But later I got to thinking about that. And I'm going, well, I mean, yeah, maybe it was an inopportune time. But, hey, we're the people that make her famous. Couldn't she have been a little kinder? I was a little disillusioned with Wonder Woman after that. <laughs> I'm surprised she didn't say, well, would you get me some coffee first? Like, who are you? You know. Be careful about who we put on the pedestal and who we give preference for and who we admire and all those kinds of things because they may well blaspheme the name of the very one that we adore. These last few verses here, 8 through 11. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. <laughs> That's pretty rebuke there. That's pretty clear. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point, you're guilty of all of it. 
And he gives us an example. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. But if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you still become a transgressor of the law. Now, like this if here, that's, that's a nice if that James puts there. It's a little bit of encouragement. He says, I want you to check your motives when you're greeting wealthy people based on the royal law of love. If you're greeting this person out of genuine love, genuine concern for God in them, you're loving yourself, loving them as you love yourself, you're doing well. That's a comment. You're doing good. But if you're showing preference because of their high rank or your preference, you're sinning. And a great reminder here that, you know, if we stumble at one point of the law, we're guilty of breaking the whole law. And so as breakers of the law ourselves, we need to show the love and grace and mercy that's been extended to us on the cross through Jesus Christ. So we wrap it up here in the last two verses, 12 and 13, not of the chapter, but for today's discussion. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the ones who show no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. A couple things there, two reminders. He says, first of all, we're not under the law of judgment. We're under the law of liberty. We've been set free through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't have to judge people according to the standards of the world anymore. We don't have to do that. We're under the law of liberty. We can judge people according to grace and to mercy. We don't have to do it with cultural distinctions, worldly standards. We're free to offer unconditional love equally to everyone we meet. And second, he says, we need to show mercy to people regardless of their social standing. Because if we fail to, we will not be shown grace and mercy. And folks, every morning we get up, we need more grace and more mercy. If we ignore, we overlook people that don't meet our standards, our preferences, and then we favor others because we consider them more worthy of our respect, it's sinful and it is a fundamental contradiction to the grace of God. We have a few minutes and I'm going to challenge us to re-greet one another. You know, I could walk in here on a Sunday morning and again, I'm not mad at you, I'm just making an observation. I could put names on the back of the pew where, where you sit every week. I could do that. Not only that, I could put the names of your friends that you sit with every week. And when we stand up and greet one another in the name of Jesus, we stand up and greet the four or five people we already know and love. We do it every week. So I'm going to challenge you this next month to sit somewhere else. Just get a different view of the stage. Just sit somewhere else. Again, we have a friendly church. A loving church. But to be such a 
small church, we really don't know everybody. I want us to take soul care seriously. This month, our life group leaders are going to be contacting everyone who is not in a life group. The goal is not to get you to attend life group. You are not second class citizens. We're not making a distinction because you're not in a life group. But soul care is about transformation of our heart. So you're going to be getting some phone calls if you're not in a life group from someone. And chances are you won't know who they are. First of all, I want you to receive it with humility. Thank you for calling and checking up on me. And they're going to say, how can we pray for you? And you may or may not have anything, but say, thank you so much for calling me this month. I look forward to whoever's going to call me next month. And those of you who are in life groups who are going to be doing some of this phone calling, uh, you're going to be doing it with fear and trepidation. Because you're going, I don't know who this person is. Do they come regularly? They come twice a year. You don't know. But as you make the contact, also maybe make the initiative to say, you know, can we meet this Sunday by the coffee pot? And let's match names and faces. And you know what? Let's sit together and worship together. Can we do that for a month? And maybe this will be just an application of this passage today. Of being doers of the word, not hearers only. And, you know, breaking out of our routines and our preferences. And just meeting some new folks. So, um, I want to give you about, uh, well, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Y'all are going to take more than that, I know. But I want you to re-stand. I want to shake hands with two or three people. Maybe cross, find somebody you don't even know, okay? And let's do some real, genuine, Christian, brotherly love. Okay, go. You're on the clock. Okay, 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 okay. Y'all are great. Y'all are doers of the word, not hearer only. Y'all can find a place to sit. I'm not done yet. Yes, you are. You're all done. I knew we were going to lose control.
All right, come on, find a seat. I know, I know, it's hard. All you introverts are going, I'm glad that's over. And all the sanguines are, okay, let's keep going. It's a party at church. Look who the last ones are sitting down. Holy in your own way, yeah. Hey, wasn't that great though? So, I want you to hear James saying a couple things. First of all, great job, guys. Way to go. And maybe next week you'll think, oh yeah, sit in a different spot. That doesn't mean one row back or forward. That means a different spot, okay? (laughs) And no glaring next week when you come in and somebody's in your spot. Let's love each other. Let's encourage each other. Let's biblically rebuke each other. And before we come to share in the Lord's communion, I want us to hear God maybe saying something like this. You know, when I look down upon you, I didn't look at your so-called value your self-worth. If I'd have looked down and just saw the sinful mess you were in, you'd be in hell. But my grace and my mercy was controlling my love and my treatment for you. And I died on the cross for your sin so that you could be part of my family. Your heart could be transformed. So as you come and share in my communion this morning, treat others with the grace and the mercy that I have given you. Let's pray together.